thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 155 of the Chills at Will podcast. It is surreal and an absolute pleasure to be across the screen from Robert Jones Jr. And just a little bit about Robert Jones Jr. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, The Prophets, which won the 2022 Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction and the 2022 NAIBA Book of the Year Award for Fiction. He was also a finalist for the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction and was named a notable book by the New York Times and one of the best books of 2021 by Time, Entertainment Weekly, USA Today, NPR, the Boston Globe, and the Washington Post, among many others. His writings have been featured in the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review, as well as in the critically acclaimed anthologies, 400 Souls, and the 1619 Project. Subscribe to his newsletter, Witness, at robertjonesjr.substack.com. Good afternoon. How are you today? Peter. It's a pleasure to see you, to meet you, and to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, the, the pleasure is all mine. I love to, we were talking a little before we started recording. I love to hear about kind of like your 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 deferred fun. You know, 2021 was the virtual book awards, right? And so you weren't able to attend in person. So you were just telling me about how you attended this year. What was it like to be surrounded by so much greatness? It was extraordinary. I was sitting at a table with Jason Mott, who won the National Book Award last year, mm. and I are now very good friends as a result of the National Book Awards to be. Mm-hmm. And we just had a blast cheering on um, the winners, um, particularly Imani Perry, who yes. is a dear friend of mine as well. I lost my voice for two days, <laughs> um, yelling and cheering her on. Mm-hmm. Then after the ceremony, there was an after party where I danced my butt off. 
And then there was an after after party, which I didn't Ooh. attend because I am 51 years old and my bedtime is 9 p.m. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, well, you deserve to have the great time. Uh, you know, it looked like just watching it. I felt like I was having so much fun. I can't imagine actually being there, being around so much, so much greatness. So cool. Indeed. I'd love to know about about just about growing up in, I want to say, Brooklyn. Yes. Mainly about your early reading, your your early relationship with the written word. I mean, were you the type that was, you know, at the public library all the time and, and you know, checking out those seven or whatever the limit was books? What was your your relationship with the written word and with language growing up? Um, very close. Um, my father bought me my first comic book at the age of four. Hmm. And that sort of ignited everything. My mom used to read, you know, stories to me, picture books like um, Cat in a Hat and Peter and the Wolf and things of that nature. But something about comic books was just so um, magical to me and um, really got me interested in the written word. And the first library that I ever encountered was actually in school. I don't know if they still do that now, elementary school, where you take out a part of your day to visit the in-school library. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was in second grade, so I was about seven, um, the first time that I ever went to a library um, and was just astounded that there were places where you can borrow books. Um, and so every week, We'd borrow books, and that was just um, a ton of fun. Um, and it, but returning again to comic books, not only did it ignite my passion for reading, but it also ignited in me um, what I now know as my purpose, mm -hmm. which is writing. Um, because my dad bought me a Wonder Woman comic book, and I was just fascinated by when I look back on it, the politics of mm. that book, um, this is a society of women um, who send their only child out into the world to mm. save it um, from the, the menace of uh, patriarchy and, mm. and Nazism and other ills. Mm. That was just a fascinating story to me. And then she's doing it with superpowers that include jewelry that, act as weaponry like bullets bracelets that can deflect bullets yeah. a tiara that can act as a boomerang um the magic lasso that can make you tell the truth hmm. um and that was where i started um at age six writing stories um where i'm her sidekick <laughs> do those stories still exist um in my mind but i hadn't they're gone. They're okay. gone. Like um, we we moved around not a lot, but a little bit when I was young. And so goodness knows they're they're in some trash heap somewhere, probably disintegrated by now. Oh man. But without them, we don't have we don't have the profits, maybe, huh? That is absolutely true. Like man. that that's where it started. I I I can definitive definitively point to that as a start. Hmm. In in some of the interviews you've done, you you've you said things like, um, you know, that you read widely from the African diaspora, but you know, you found a lack of queer black love. I think that's the exact quote. I might have been combining two. Did, you know, you talked about, I mean, starting at such a young age. I mean, did you would you have known how to articulate it at six or eight or ten 
about maybe what was missing or what you weren't seeing in literature? Kind of how did those those discoveries come about that there was something missing or that, something that was maybe rendered, you know, inappropriately or not correctly? That is a great question. Um, and it makes me reflect on how I saw myself as a Black queer child. Um, you don't have the language mm-hmm. for what you're feeling and what you understand yourself to be. You quickly develop that language because then the people around you, whether it's family or friends or just the general neighborhood society or such, begin to police you in certain ways that make you understand, oh, what I'm feeling is a bad thing or um, what I am is this bad word they're using to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so I initially understood myself as alone. Mm. Um, and then when I started to understand that there were people like me, I understood those people to be bad because I was also bad for being this thing. Mm-hmm. So then I wanted to s- separate myself from that thing. Okay. Um, but I would say about at the age of maybe seven, eight or nine, I started to understand that this is not something that I could separate from myself, that it was an intrinsic part of who I was. And the the great fear was, how am I going to survive being this type of person in a world that despises this type of person? Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I began to contend with those fears at a very early age. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, it didn't really dawn on me until I was about maybe, maybe 16 mm-hmm. that this experience of myself is not something I'm seeing represented in an accurate way, in an authentic way mm-hmm. in media. I would see things on television where, you know, the gay guy was the brunt of the brunt of jokes or, you know, um, the victim of brutality, but I never saw anything fully rounded. I think the first gay character I ever encountered was um, uh, Billy Crystal's character on Soap. Okay. Back in the seventies, okay, um, and after that, maybe the singer Sylvester, um, who, who um sung "You Make Me Feel Mighty Real." He was a big disco okay. person. Um, so I saw it out in the world as far away, but not really in my inner circle until I got into my teen years, um, and then realized. I could write about this. Mm. So I, I I had a secret novel that I'd never completed called Conjure, mm. where I was writing about being a, a gay teen. Um, and uh, it never saw the light of day. I don't know where that is either. And I thought I had it, but I was recently going through the archives and I can't find it, oh, um, which I wrote on construction paper, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, <laughs> I started looking and really couldn't find um, exactly what I was looking for, which was a authentic dimensional representation of black, the intersection of blackness and queerness. Hmm. 
Thank you for that answer. When you talk about that aloneness, is is that synonymous? When you talk about being alone, is that synonymous with lonely, or was there was there a part of you too that was, you know, like, hey, I'm I'm unique, I'm special, like, I, I guess in the earlier years. That that's a good question. Wow, these are great questions. Um, the aloneness um, was not necessarily no loneliness as a child because I had a lot of friends, although. Um, I did feel put upon because um, other children are can be some of the meanest people on the planet. Yep. So when they detect what they think is queerness, which is um, for them, you're not acting like a boy is supposed mm. to act mm. all the time. So I, you know, I enjoyed some things that were not considered boyish, like jumping double dutch, reading a Wonder Woman comic book. Mm playing with dolls, things things like that. And kids, because they learn this very early on, police gender yes. very harshly. Yes. Um, and so I felt limitations in terms of who I could um, be friends with and things of that nature. But I did not, for some reason, feel lonely. Loneliness didn't kick in until puberty did. Mm. Um, and... I was seeing all of my friends go out on dates and go to prom and you know all of that kind of stuff and I had no one. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't even articulate that I had no one mm -hmm. because it was um, me contending with that loneliness and also feeling pressure to pretend to be something that I'm not mm -hmm. um, because heterosexuality is compulsory. Right. So you know all of my, particularly my male friends would be like, you know, why are you not with this girl? Why are you not dating this girl? This girl likes you. And then the, the, the girls were kind of like hitting on me. And I felt I could not decline them okay, sure. without some sort of repercussion. Mm. Um, so it was, I was caught between a rock and a hard place. Mm. Well, you know, we'll, we'll get into the book in a little bit, but the, the, the way that you do the, the banal, I don't know if I've ever said that word out loud, <laughs> you know, just about the, the day to day, you know, setting aside what's not even possible to set aside the fact that these are enslaved peoples, but just on a daily basis, you know, like Isaac and, and Samuel, just what they have to navigate on a daily basis to like, you talk about like hide it or right. It's just, um, I mean, it's so eye opening and just so it's part of that incredible uh, book over your right shoulder. There's the gentleman who, you know, he, he had a cigarette in his hand. He had the world, so much of the world figured out. He was just, you know, brilliant orator. I, I, you know, I'm a high school English teacher. And last year around this time, I was showing my students, um, uh, he was one of his famous uh, debates with, um, uh, oh gosh, the, the guy's name is, 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 uh, escaping me at the, at the moment. But, you know, of course, talking about James Baldwin, his speech, this 13 minute YouTube, I mean, my students almost literally had their, their jaws hit the floor, right? I mean, just the skills, the oratory skills, you know, that was a time right in the, in the sixties and fifties and sixties where more of the public discourse was out there, right? As far as, you know, the thinkers and all of that, it's right. a long way of getting at basically tell us about your, your meeting, not literally, but your meeting, uh, maybe you did meeting James Baldwin and his just indelible, uh, mark on you. Um, I came to James Baldwin rather late. I had always heard the name. I didn't even know what he looked like. I had no idea who he was. I just knew he was a great person for whatever reasons. Sure. 
it wasn't until um, I returned to college as an adult um, at the age of 31 to pursue creative writing mm -hmm. that I was introduced to Baldwin's work in my freshman year in um, my people power and politics course mm -hmm. um, by um, Jeremy Crace, Professor Jeremy Crace. Okay. Um, I read um, Here Be Dragons, um, which was one of his later or last essays. And I was absolutely astounded by the clarity, by the wisdom, by the craft, um, by the intelligence of this man. And so after that, I was like, I have to find everything I can get my hands on by James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And um, was, was sort of insulted that he wasn't more widely read, mm -hmm. more celebrated. Um, he is now, of course. Yes, yes. Um, but back in 2002, he was not the household name um, in the public consciousness as he is now, um, quoted every five seconds everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of led me um, to watching this documentary about him called The Price of the Ticket. Okay. Um, and toward the end of that documentary, his brother says something to the effect of on his deathbed, Baldwin had hoped that someone would um, search through the wreckage for him mm. and, and, and that he would not be forgotten. And that really struck me. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to celebrate Baldwin in, in whatever ways that I can. And so I started a blog called Son of Baldwin. Um, and that was like in maybe 2007, 2008. And that eventually became a social media platform, Facebook, mm -hmm. Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, with hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, and it's all because I was trying to continue um, the work that Baldwin had started um, to, to look at our society in these really critical ways, not to harm or hurt, but to force us to heal and see each other as human beings. Well, thank you. I know that um, I think fairly recently, right? You're, you, you're not on social media, which for which I applaud you, um, you know, the, the quagmire or whatever you want to call it, the social media often is. But like you said, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. I know you continue to write and witness. And it's just, uh, I mean, you've obviously done incredible good for for his name, you know, so much so that you're often linked, right? I know um, I've seen, I think I feel, I feel like I've seen at least twice on on Twitter on or on uh, social media where this most recent one was the great Disha Filia. She kind of stepped in and corrected you. Someone had quoted thinking they were quoting James Baldwin, but it was from, it was from your, from the blog, you know, as son of Baldwin. And it's that quote that is, um, that is a beautiful one and a sad one and all of the above. It's quote, we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression in the denial of my humanity and my right to exist. Yes. Um, that is a quote by me. Um, but a major publication had assumed that Son of Baldwin was simply a James Baldwin tribute account so uh -huh. that everything that it posted was written by James or said by James Baldwin. Mm. So they 
then published an article and quoted it and attributed it to James Baldwin. And then from there, it went viral. Kind of self-perpetuating almost, huh? Yes, artists making murals of James Baldwin with that quote and so on and so forth. And so now everyone thinks that James Baldwin says it, although uh, my friends and others do correct people when they see it um, out in the wilds okay. attributed to Baldwin. But, you know, I um, it is the greatest honor that someone thought that something I said was something Baldwin would say. Right. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a quote that I mean, just obviously echoes throughout. I mean, it's so resonant. I, I in reading the book, you know, thinking about like Paul, who's the 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 slave owner, who's the the master of the of the plantation, and you know his. Of course, there's so many connections to now about you know religion being used to justify racism and homophobia and, and abuse and all of the above, and I'm just thinking of like you know, people saying things that like that black lives matter and, and those kind of things are political when, you know, that quote reminds us like, they're not even close to being political. Like we can, we, we can, we can talk about infrastructure, right? right? We can talk about our different ideas of that, but this is, you know, obviously, and I'm, you, know, you said it so beautifully with that quote. I wonder, um, you know, besides of course, the great James Baldwin, you, in your acknowledgements, you have a really interesting way of, of making those acknowledgements little, you know, bold in the names and, and almost like a personal message. Who are some of the older, some of the other shoulders upon, you know, whom you stand, whom your book stands? My goodness, there are so many. As you know, my acknowledgement section is 10 pages long, <laughs> um, which I'm told is very unusual. Um, because I wanted to thank every single person who had ever encouraged me or um, told me that I had a talent, that th that this writing was not a fluke. It was not something that was out of my reach that I could actually attain these goals. Right. Um, but in terms of my literary influences, um, I stand upon the shoulders of Zora Neale Hurston mm. and Wallace Thurman mm. and Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Gail Jones and Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison, Chenua Achebe, um, there are just so many brilliant, like sometimes I, I go back through the backlist of, you know, the classic works by the people that I'm naming and I just read it for, for the sent the, the construction of sentences, hmm. the genius of, of these people is just mind blowing and remarkable. And they, they make me want to be better. Like, so with every with every project, I want to be as crystal clear, as wise, mm. as creative, as the of the as these ancestors of mine um, and these elders of mine, who who do extraordinary work, um, not just in 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 literature but outside of literature. I just there are just so many people that um, I um, owe a great debt to in terms of my art. Yeah, I mean that we could all be so as 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 ourselves as James Baldwin as Zora Neale Hurston, right? I mean, I, I know she. I, I think it was when she was teaching at a university, and she was, uh, you know, like disciplined or gonna be disciplined because she was wearing jeans, wearing you know long pants, and she, you know, she she could not care less. Like, okay, you know, you know, just <laughs> and, and you know, <laughs> right, right, just just her own person, for sure. Um, 
it sounds so it sounds like the the Clark Kent that is you and the Superman that is son of Baldwin were kind of not uncovered like it was a major major secret but with Casey am I saying right Casey Layman KSA Layman yes I'd love to know I mean he I know is such a a great literary fellow a great I'm mean, obviously a great writer on his own and just a great um supporter and and benefactor and collaborator I'd love to know how his uh you know his his um collaboration with you has helped for you um Kiese Lehman, I owe such a great debt to Kiese because if not for him, the profits would not be published. Hmm. Kiese is the very first person who published an essay of mine in uh, I uh, in Gawker. He was okay. an editor at Gawker at the time. Hmm. He published an essay of mine. Um, he is the person who um, recommended my literary agent, PJ Mark, at Janklo and Nesbitt. Um, and that as a, as a result of that, um, the profits is what it is today. Um, Kiese was the first person outside of my private circle who um, told me that with this work, I had something that was of value. He is sometimes to his own detriment, a community person. Like he opens doors and windows for everyone mm. um, to the to the degree at which now it's expected of him and and people sort of disregard his humanity um in in that sense and i always encourage him you know save some for yourself yeah. ksa and then on top of all of that long division um his novel um is one of the best pieces of lit literature i had i had ever written and it gave me the courage to to tell my own story in the prophets to tell that story uh -huh. um he did something unconventional um, and did it unapologetically. Sure. And, and I said, well, if Kiese could do it, you know, I could follow in that path. Maybe I can do it too. He is also a brother to me. Um, and I love him dearly. He is a remarkable, remarkable man. Beautifully said. I, I wonder who else in, you know, contemporary writing, who also those, I mean, I'm sure it's a, it's a, endless list ceaseless list but you know who really inspire you challenge you like you talk about like hey i can give you the the license to do what you do as you said there are so many um you mentioned before disha filia um the secret lives of church ladies does such remarkable work okay. um there's um donnie walton okay who wrote the final revival of opal and nev there's Maisie card who wrote These Ghosts Are Family. There's Mateo Ascarapur, who wrote Black Buck. Um, there's Jason Mott, um, who wrote Hell of a Book. Um, gosh, there like I could literally name 20 contemporary writers who I think are right. Olga Dies Dreaming by Sochil Gonzalez. They're just, gosh. Um, there's a book coming out in 2023, Jan on January 10th, called Moonrise Over New Jessup by Jamila Minix. That is an extraordinary book. Um, and I feel even with the authors that I'm naming that I don't know personally, mm -hmm. I feel a kinship with them. I feel in community with them. I feel like we're writing um, for our lives. Um, um, we're writing from particular sociopolitical lenses that are often marginalized. Mm -hmm. Um, and their work gives, it inspires me um, to um, 
make sure that I'm doing my best as well um, in terms of my art and constantly developing and thinking and um, taking risks. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm going to make a list and I'm going to send it to you at some point <laughs> of all the books that I've read in the past year by people who I think are brilliant and extraordinary writers. They're just, it's like writing, I, you always get the sense that there can only be one great writer sure. or there can only be a very few. What I've learned after being published is that there are hundreds if not thousands of extraordinary mm. writers mm. and and that this isn't competition right this is an this is a wonderful community and i'm so glad to be a part of it right what a time to be a reader <laughs> what a time to be a reader for sure yes indeed well, I, I appreciate that 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 document of those books you read that's going to be like a like a holy scroll for me i appreciate that and getting into the book into the prophets like i would love to know i mean it's it is heavy to use a title from Casey Lehman, right? One of his from his book. Like it is a heavy book, to say the least. Yeah. I wonder, like, about maybe like a, the emotional toll on you, and also just about like like research. You know, it is a, a fiction. It is a mythical kingdom, correct? In Africa, that's used, although it's based yes. on. But it, it's based on research. Yeah. So I just yes. love to know about the research, and also like, I mean, was it? Is this something you've been working on in some way for 15 years or three years or your whole life or, you know? Thank you for that, for asking that. The Prophets has been swirling around in my head since maybe 2005, 2006. Mm -hmm. And it took me about 14, 15 years to write um, from start to fit, from the moment I put pen to paper to, to the last revision mm -hmm. um, before it went to press yeah. um, was about 14, 15 years. And the reason why it took that long was a, a multitude of factors. I was terrified to write it um, because I didn't think I had, one, the gumption to the talent um, and maybe three, the, the courage. Um, and I was also working. Uh, as an undergraduate student, I had three part-time jobs Wow. As a grad student, I had two part-time jobs. And then after I graduated, I had a full-time job. So I would write, um, as Toni Morrison once said, at the edges of the day. Mm. And for me, the edges of the day meant three o'clock in the morning. Um, I would get up at three. Oh, so right. the beginning of the day, not the end of the day. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. I'd get up at 3 a.m., write for about an hour, go back to sleep and then wait for the alarm to wake me up for work um, mm. at, at 6.30, 7 o'clock, and then go to work. Mm. And I committed myself to that hour, like religiously, like um, I, whether I wrote one sentence, one word, or pa pages and pages, I said, get up and write something. Mm. Um, and so that is how I sort of got through it. And then on the research end of it, I, I had the great fortune of being an Africana studies minor okay. um, in undergrad. I was creative writing major, Africana studies minor. And so I got to read so much work um, in the um, Africana canon. So I read um, slave narratives. I read works by um, continental African authors, um, African-American authors, Caribbean authors, South American authors. It was just 
Um, I read from the entire diaspora. And so I got a really good sense, um, not just in fiction, but in nonfiction and memoir and such of um, the ways in which um, we are, as Black people, not a monolith, mm. that we have a rich and storied history, um, that our history does not begin with antebellum slavery, mm. nor does it end there. Um, and exposure to all of that really was what was the driving force for, but I'm not seeing this. Why am I not seeing this? And the this is the Black queer love story between two Black men in particular. Mm. Um, I wasn't seeing it. And I wasn't seeing it in particular in these time periods that preceded the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to. And going back to Toni Morrison, um, Morrison said, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to have to write it, but I was scared to because I was afraid of how it would be received sure. um, by people who were maybe anti-Black or people who were anti-queer. Um, but um, I could not not write it. Mm. I could not not write it, yes. Well, well, thank you for that. I wonder, you know, you talked about reading nonfiction, reading fiction. I wonder like, what you maybe felt you could do with this book as fiction rather than writing a nonfiction piece. Um. I could combine things um, so I can make composite people and societies uh, yeah. and ideas as opposed to being letter of the law. I could do spirit of the law. Mm. So, for example, you mentioned earlier um, the mythical African tribe, mm -hmm. the Kasango people. Um, they are a composite of different um, peoples, villages, ways of being cultures on the continent as it related to how they saw things like gender, gender identity, sexuality, um, uh, royalty, all of, the, all, all of those sorts of things. So while my mythical tribe did not exist, mm -hmm. they, they draw on, I drew on many different um, existing uh, tribes to sort of formulate them so that I could drive home a particular kind of point and also um, sort of illustrate the differences between an Africanist point of view and a Americanist point of view when it comes to those sociopolitical constructs. Hmm. Is that the same as saying like Eurocentric or is that or is America centric even a more specific thing? I think you could say Eurocentric as yeah. well. Um, because it, it it really begins with Europe. Um, Europe comes into the continent of Africa and uses Christianity and not just Europe, the Middle East did the same thing with um, Islam to force black Africans um, or Africans at that time that every everybody on Af in Africa was black mm. would force them to sort of get rid of their um, indigenous understandings mm -hmm. of sexuality because uh, homosexuality was not a big deal. Well, yeah, so I mean, it reminds me of what 
you know, I've heard, you know, similar ideas of like groups that have kind of like, quote unquote, assimilated into homophobia. Yeah. Homophobia, transphobia, these things are not indigenous to Africa. Mm. They're indigenous mm. to Europe. Sure. Um, but it, the, the, the really, I, I'm going to say admirable, but I don't mean admirable. Mm. Maybe I really mean sinister. Okay. The, the sinister thing about white supremacy is that it gets its target to believe it. Hmm. So to internalize it, to believe that, you know, your ideas or, or white supremacy's ideas are mine. Hmm. So you have now in, in modern Africa, um, continental Africans who actually believe um, the precepts of homophobia and transphobia um, and ignore their ignore or don't even know their own histories, mm. how, their, how their forebears, how their ancestors um, incorporated these states of being as nature, mm. which is what they are. They're just right. a part homosexual, the transgender person is a part of nature. Right. Um, and so I took all of those before time ideas or pre-colonial ideas and I said, I'm going to weave those throughout um, this mythical tribe that I'm creating so that the reader understands um, the Eurocentric way of understanding the world is not default. Right. It is not set in stone. Right. It's constructed. Sure. And it's not the way it's always been. And it's not, not nowhere, nowhere close to it, right? Right. Right. Is it a too simplistic of a of a comparison or an analog that like the that Amos would be representative of that internalized homo not internalized homophobia but that learned homophobia? Yes, he he Amos is actually one of my favorite characters in the book because mm. of the conundrum that he's yes. facing. He doesn't hate Samuel and Isaiah. He in fact loves them. But he also loves Essie. Mm -hmm. And he's trying, he is being a politician, quite frankly. Right, right. Um, he's trying to figure out how do I protect my wife um, and get, I, I can protect my wife if I can get these boys to do what Massa wants them to do. And so I'm going to do everything in my power. I'm going to utilize whatever influence I have to make that so. Right. Um, but in the process, he is internalizing the ways of white supremacy, mm -hmm. Christianity, his master, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So he's creating harm, even though that's not his intention. Right. He's a convert to Christianity kind of self-converted not forced uh at least you know violently but de you know definitely subtly by by paul by the master but do you understand him to have become a preacher become a, a minister if you will solely to how much of it i think it, how much of it do you think is pure is pure wanting to know something greater something bigger i think after he has this 
spiritual unexplainable experience where he thinks now he's he has a better understanding of Christianity than Paul does. Mm-hmm. He believes it's coming from a real place and that he has been called. Yes. Um, but the other part of it, and I would I would venture to say that most preachers in the real world are also like this. The power yes. is seductive. Hmm. Um, and how I know when you are being genuine and when you are just being um, uh, abusive True. is what do you do with your power? Mm. Are you using it to preach from your pulpit to, to that women should be secondary, that the LGBTQIA community is an abomination? Um, or are you using it to lift people up to inspire people, to be their best selves, to be kind and generous and humane and loving to one another, irrespective of our um, identities. Mm. If you're doing the former, then I know you're just a huckster. You're, you're, You're a power broker and you're just in it for the wealth. Right. If you're doing the latter, perhaps, perhaps you really feel that you're called um, by some higher power to make the world a better place. Hmm. You talk about Amos being, I don't know if you said one of your favorite, one of your favorite characters, right? And he is like, you know, what you do so well in this book is that there are many characters, but they're also, they're also their own individuals. They have their own stories. We get to know most, if not all of their stories, you know, talking about Isaiah and Samuel, who we've mentioned, of course, I mean, it's safe to say that the story revolves around them and about their love. They're what late teens, early twenties. I, in my head, um, I never named right. ages because um, enslaved people didn't know when they were born. Um, and so time operated differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the purposes of me understanding Samuel and Isaiah, I would say that they are about 18, 19, okay. no yeah. older than 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and by the seat, you know, right? They they knew their their age by the seasons, and of right. course, they're not going to remember exactly how many, but it's an estimate, like you talked about. Right. Like we said, you know, the story does revolve around them and about their love. They they are put into the barn with which they, you know, they they take that and they do a good great job, you know, whatever that means in the eyes of the of the slave master, right? They keep it clean, they keep it efficient, but they they're also they're also orphans. Yes. Right? They don't have they don't have the family, they don't have the parents, they don't have the mother and father with them because of all of the horrors that they've gone through. And they find you know, they find a love within each other. They find their brothers as well as lovers, right? In a sense, they are brothers in that they understand what it's like to be alone. Mm. Have been snatched out of the arms of your loved ones and treated as cattle Mm -hmm. Um, to be loaded onto a wagon like stuff. Um, And I think that might even lend to why they are so deeply in love with each other because they, they can kind of communicate without words. Their, Mm -hmm. their love is on a different level because of their shared experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, that's that was, you know, the 
probably the primary state of enslavement was mm -hmm. orphanhood. Right. Um, families were broken apart intentionally by the powers that be. It's it's sad, but I think that's what that's what draws them to one another. Mm -hmm. Well, you talk about intention, and I, you know, not exactly the same topic, but I've seen in other interviews you've talked about, you know, how there are people in the in black communities who will say that you know homosexuality was invented you know, invented by the white man to to break up, right? To break up the community, right? You're, you're laughing at that. And then I guess also the idea of, um, you know, the fact that obviously it was such a black, you know, like you talk about, it's, it's, it's nature, it's not nurture, right? They are born this way. It is biology, it is hormones, it is the way they are, the way they're born. And then homophobia gets into the way and comes along later. But I guess just the idea of, um, of where that fits into this particular book, this idea that, how Paul sees it, I guess, how Paul, the slave master, sees their homosexuality. Does he see any benefit in it again about, you know, because it's always about breaking up families and splitting them apart. How does he see it? Does he see it in a moral way that's clouded by his 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 white supremacy? It's kind of a long way of asking. How does he see that? He sees it as a threat to capitalism. Okay. I need these two bucks. Right. To I need them to breed. Yes. And their um, companionship, their partnership, their relationship does not is not conducive mm. to the amount of money I need to make from them. Right. And that really is the root mm. of homophobia. Mm. It is. I need you to make additional laborers. I need you to make additional soldiers. Mm. To, um so that I can exploit and make more and more and more and more. Homosexuality was, it's no longer that, that way due to um, modern science, mm -hmm. was a threat to um, right. the capitalist arrangement of things because you needed the nuclear family um, to, to, for it to be optimal conditions for the making of more and more and more and more. Right. Um, now homosexuals though are married. Um, I'm married. I've been married for three years. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and having their own families and emulating the heterosexual model. So mm. um, that's that's a little bit of why homosexuality is slightly more acceptable now, because we can we as homosexuals can prove to our to to our oppressors, well, we can be like you, mm -hmm. and that is. That's really what it's, it, it's conformity that they mm -hmm. want. They don't want you to be different. Um, and so conformity. Yeah. The, the, um, the hypocrisy, the irony of, you know, of Paul having so many kids out there, <laughs> right. You know, like, you know, Adam, who's the driver, who's his son with an unknown mother, right. Unknown to him, at least, you know, he, there are moments when he's like, he's not, you know, he calls, he's about to call him father. And it's like, I can't call him father. Right. I mean, he's, you know, just a, a sperm donor. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the irony, obviously, I mean, he has so many kids that are on the plantation that are outside the plant, you know, just um, the irony of, you know, the nuclear family, the the godly family and all of that that, that we talk about. We, we we see that all the time with the GOP. Mm. You know, they get up on their in their pulpits and on their microphones and they're talking about family values, this and family family values that. And then if you scratch the surface, they're freaks. Like everybody else. What 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 are you saying? Are you saying that Donald Trump's not a family man? 
Madison, Madison Cawthorn. Are you saying that Madison, what's her name? Green. You're saying they're not family people. Are you sure about that? Scratch the surface and you'll oh find Oh my it. gosh. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I, I am shocked. I am absolutely shocked. The, <laughs> the structure of the book, you know, is, is in, is many of them are labeled with, you know, their biblical, biblical stories, biblical chapters. It starts off with the, the ancestors. Is that, is that too generic of a term? No, no, no. right. And there's there the the whispers, and they talk about uh, one of the lines that really stuck with me was quote, "You thought we were the dead, and you the living." Right. I mean, it's very similar to like what like a Greek chorus. Um, I don't think it's in the first chapter, but a little bit later on, it's, you know, we need you. I'm gonna ask you about the you in a minute, but we need you to do one thing first, and that's to remember. But also, memory is not enough. Mm. Who who is the you? Is is it? Is it uh, who, who's the who the ancestors speaking to? One of us, all of us, all of the African diaspora. They are speaking to one of us and all of us. Mm. Um, they are speaking to the reader. Sure. They are speaking to me, the writer. They are speaking to the characters. Um. So yes, they are speaking to one of us at a time and all of us mm. at the same time. Right. Um. And the idea of that came to me in a dream. Okay. Um, I dreamt about an ancestor who um, was trying to teach me how to till the soil. Mm. I mean, how to plant. And I was doing it all wrong. And he, he stood back and he put his hands on his hips and he said, you do not yet know us. Yet. Uh... Oh, do not yet know us. And that's, that's, the line in the book that's yes. that came to me in a dream and then I, I i i took that i interpreted that as oh the ancestors want a voice in this mm. and maybe they they deserve one because they can lead the reader through some of the more complicated or rough parts of this wow what, what were the ancestors not part of the book at that point no oh wow not. oh my gosh this, this, the the original version of the prophets the very first version i wrote down was only one person point one person's point of view mm. it was going to be structured like a fictionalized slave narrative where oh, okay. the enslaved person was recounting their life okay but i quickly realized that didn't give me the room to really talk about all of the things that i wanted to cover mm. um, and and i realized sometime down the line um, maybe draft five or six or seven that the real story was the love between these two characters and that yes, love yes. needed witnesses from, uh, from 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 across time and across uh dimensions wow i'm sure that 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 one person's story book would have been incredible it's like but now we can't imagine it without all of these characters right yeah that's you know sometimes i go back to the first thing that i wrote down and i read it and i think not bad writing hmm. it just it just couldn't accomplish what i needed it to Sure. You talk about the witnesses and, um, you know, there's Maggie, for example, who's a, a motherly or sisterly figure to, well, I guess more like motherly or big sister, auntie maybe for, for Samuel and Isaac. But, you know, there's also, and like you talk about, they, for the most part, those watching, they're, they understand. They understand the, the love. They understand, you know, Isaiah and Samuel until obviously some of them are, are you know, taken from the group by by Amos with this, you know, well, it's not Christian, etc. I love how they are together, Isaiah and Samuel. They're often called what the two of the two of them. 
two of them, yes. But they're also very individual. Mm -hmm. And I want to say that Isaiah has the first word in the book, you know, and he is the one who's, so I'd love to talk about, if you could talk a little bit about Isaiah with his original name, right, given to him by his parents that was, that Amos was kind of in possession of. Yes. I guess, I guess maybe uh, how you separated the two and then, you know, how they're also as one character, as a composite. Um, Isaiah is the one who is, despite what happens in the book plot-wise, okay. Isaiah, I think, is the more co courageous of the two because he's the one that's like, my love for you will not be diminished by anyone. Right, right. For any reason. I will not pretend. I will not go along with anything that separates me from you. Hmm. Whereas Samuel, who is the more physical, yes. the more aggressive of the two is sort of like, well, let's do what we got to do. Um, we can, we can, you know, just pretend and we can still love each other, but we can, you know, just pretend. Right. Isaiah's like, I, I refuse. I mm. will not. I would rather die. Mm. And um, then lie about what I feel about you. Um, and the two of them together are then sort of like a yin and yang because then in the, in the throes of lovemaking, it's Isaiah who's the, the aggressor, the, the right. one who, who is dominating and, mm -hmm. and such. So this shared space, it's almost like two spirits becoming one. And then as the one, they're a, f a fuller thing. And so it was, it was important um, to make them distinct because I think during the, the writing process, if I remember correctly, um, that was the um, constant critique I was getting from mm -hmm. um, my editor was make, let's, let's make sure that they're distinct mm -hmm. as, as individuals. And so um, I worked hard at trying to, you know, um, ensure that, um, Isaiah's more laid back approach was was clear and 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 forward mm -hmm. and Samuel's um bull in a china shop self right, right. um was given the room that it deserved right there's an extremely moving moment where I believe it's Isaiah asked Samuel you know like or no I think it's the other way around Samuel asked you know like do you remember your mom right Isaac Samuel, yes. Thank you, you thank you. Yes, yes, yes. And you know, and that that starts a, obviously a full flood of emotions. That you know, they're always there, but it, it brings it to the fore. I'd love to you to talk a little bit about Isaiah and that and his name, and, and I guess just the importance of names, right? Obviously, you write about in the book how almost literally the first thing that the slave master would do would give a name, right? His name, yes, his name that he chose. You know, irrespective of where the person came from, didn't didn't matter, right? Just the importance yeah. of names and Isaiah's in particular. In, in in terms of the naming practice of enslaved people, um, the enslavers were trying their damnedest to get the enslaved to forget everything about themselves, where they were from, what their people were called, what their real names were. Most interesting to me was that they would often give them Christian names, right. biblical names, right. um, as a means to say, you have been conquered. Mm. In terms of Isaiah, his parents give him a name from what they remembered about their old selves mm -hmm. before they were enslaved. And his name has a special meaning for them. 
I, it, his original name, if I remember correctly, is the one who brings joy. Right. Is what it means. Coyote or coyote? Coyote. Coyote. Yes. And one of my favorite parts of the book really is when Amos is thinking about telling him his name, telling Isaiah his real mm -hmm. name because he's in possession of it. He right. knows Isaiah's real name is. And he's, you know, thinking about if he would just bend to my will, then I can give him this information he wants. And what, how much joy would he have knowing that his parents named him this specifically because they already knew who he was. Yes. And so that battle between um, Isaiah and Coyote um, and the, the, the only time he actually hears it, he doesn't even know what he's hearing. Mm. Um, is I, I the, the naming practice was just really important to me because I realized how much it it was a part of the enslavement mm. to snatch away a name and to and to rename. Right. Yeah, I mean, all of those links being cut. And there's one of the characters, uh, forget which one, but, you know, she talks about she almost like slipped up, I think just in her head, but used the term maybe Yovo, right? Yes. Like foreigner, white man, right? When the others use two, how do you pronounce it? Two Bob? Two Bob. Right, which I definitely remember from Roots. Yes. Right, the term for 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 a white man. And, you know, that was the one used. I mean, I was so, it was so interesting to me too that it was used I kind of had the impression that, that would have been used very early on in the American slave trade, but the fact that maybe maybe only that from the language from from Africa persisted, but it did. And and I I chose to Bob very specifically. It's a Wolof word, okay, and it means to convert. Oh wow! Because what the Wolof people noticed about Europeans was that they were coming and they were changing them. They were or attempting to change them, so they would they would call them the converters. Oh wow! Um, um, Yovo, Yovo is um, a, another term. I can't remember what region it's from, but it 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 refers to lacking skin or color. Right. Um, that was more about the the outward looks. That's interesting. I I, I figured Tubab was was more outward as well. Thank you for your uh, for the Wikipedia, you know, rabbit hole. I, I want to say that that Yovo is is ben, Beninese. I don't... There it is, right from Benin. Yes, from Benin. Benin, Benin, Togo. Yes. So you know, there's the there's the parallel story of, um, you know, the kingdom of Kosongo, right? That we talked about, King King Akusa. Am I saying that name correctly? Yes. Would you? Would you classify King Akusa as non-binary? What would, you know, in the 2022 terms? Um, or do we not categorize? King Akusa? See, the, the, what I loved so much about the research process was how um, pre-colonial Africans thought so wildly different about gender than we could even imagine. Right. That things like manhood and womanhood didn't mean the same things that they mean for us. Mm -hmm. so, like um, we can't unlearn that almost. Right. Right. It's it, because we, 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 those of us who have been educated in Eurocentric systems tie genitals very closely 
to gender and gender identity. So if you have a penis, you are a man. If you have a vagina, you are a woman. And that is, there's no ifs, no ands, or buts are supposed. Binary. Mm -hmm. In Africanist views, your genitals had nothing to do with your gender. You got, in, in some of the societies in Nigeria, for example, the child wasn't even given a gender. They decided when they became an adult what they wanted to be. The, the person themselves did. The person themselves uh, decided as at adulthood, okay, I think I'm a man or I'm a non-binary person or I'm a woman or mm. I'm none of those things. Mm. You know, they they chose. Mm. And King Akusa, um, you know, no one's ever asked me what her gender identity is or, or, her, or, or her gender. Um. She's, I think she's a woman, I think. Um, but she also might be non-binary mm-hmm. um, or she might be both a man and a woman. Um, that's a really good question. I'd have to think about that. But she is capable of um, being pregnant and having children. Right. But I don't know if she would think of herself as a woman. Hmm. Or she might think of herself as a woman sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, she might be fluid. Sure. Um, so thank you for asking that question because it made me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's such a, a subtle and such a great scene where um, there's, a, there's a translator with King Akusa and the, the Portuguese. Um, I forget the main, the guy in charge of the Portuguese. I forget his name. Gabriel, Brother Gabriel. Gabriel. Brother Gabriel, right? And the translator changes. I think I think Brother Gabriel says your your highness or a, a female term. Yes. And the uh, the translator is sure to to twist it, right? So yes, some things are lost in translation in our world, but sometimes it's it's, it's a successful thing. It's beneficial, right? Yes. yes. To have that in between. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love to talk about Timothy and Ruth. Um, Timothy is the son is the you know the, is the white man is the son of Paul. Um, you know, he goes to school in the north. He's the also the son of Ruth, who, if possible, is maybe even more detestable than than Paul, in, in my in my opinion. <laughs> right. I mean, she's yeah. But is Timothy kind of representative of, you know, he he doesn't use the N-word. He uses the more, you know, we say politically correct term. He's gone to the north. He for sure is a you know, has privilege and for sure perpetuates, you know, racism. But he thinks he doesn't. Maybe is he kind of representative of like a, an in between or like a you know quote unquote well meaning white man? Um, you know he he basically while it may not be physical he's he's a rapist right? Yes, he is. Um, and one of the things I learned about rapists is most of them don't think that they're rapists. Mm-hmm. Um, they think rape is when you are hiding in the alley waiting for somebody to walk by and you violently take something from them. They don't understand that rape is there's levels to it. And Mm -hmm. that um, it, all it requires is you not getting clear, explicit consent from the other person. That's all it requires because most people would then say, gosh, there are times in my life when I didn't get clear, explicit consent from someone I assumed Mm -hmm. that they wanted to. Um, and then that would then implicate themselves. And most people don't want to be implicated. Mm. They Accountability is always for other people. Sure. That's one of the things social media taught me. Actually, <laughs> you know, yeah. why, why I'm glad to be gone. Sadly, you're correct. Yeah, you're <laughs> right on with that. Oh, my gosh. So, so you know, his victims are, her, her victims is Isaiah. 
um, as you know, his supposedly his painting subject, right? And obviously, you can you could not have more of a power structure imbalance, you know, than Timothy and Isaiah, right? Right. So, like you talk about it, you know, it may not be you know the, in the in a dark alley, but it was it was it was definitely rape. Indeed. And, yeah. So, I mean, is there is there a sympathy to be had for Timothy? Is there a sympathy to be had for every character, even even Ruth, even Paul? Yes. The sympathy I have for them is, gosh, you forfeited your humanity and you don't even know it. Mm. I feel terrible for you. I'm so sad for you. Um, that's when I'm writing, when I was writing Timothy, Ruth and Paul and James, mm -hmm. those are all the things I was thinking because first of all, I had, I had to find reasons for why they were the way right. they were. Right. Um, because no one is just a monster. That's, you know, only only in comic books. Mm -hmm. Real life, people become the things that they become because of the lives they've lived. Um, whether um, so, some of us, of course, not all of us are affected in the same way by our circumstances. Um, some people can go through the identical things and take two completely sure. different paths, but those things still affect us, mm -hmm. whether for good or for ill. So I particularly for Paul, I needed to understand what could have made you look at another human being and say property. Um, and so part of the reason why his chapter is so long is because I was trying to find the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me a really, he was the most difficult character to write. I'm sure. Um, Ruth, who is my husband's favorite character, he cackled throughout the entire t time he was reading it. He was like, oh my God, oh my God. Um, she's, you know, dealing with some things too, as a, as a woman. Sure. Um, but here's one of the things I learned about oppression that breaks my heart. Being oppressed does not teach you to be a better person. It mm. teaches you how to be an oppressor. Mm. So I can't rely on the fact that I'm black or queer or poor or uh, um, grew up in an urban neighborhood to give me the, the required tools to be a good person. Mm. As Toni Morrison said, that's not enough. Mm. I have to work at empathy and kindness and humanity and being able to see that in other people. I have to, that has to be a conscious decision on my part. Um, and for many people, they think because I'm a woman, or because I'm uh, whatever oppressed in this particular way, that automatically grants me something that makes me more human or me more humane. Mm -hmm. And that's not that's not been my observation. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see that with Timothy, who is a queer character, mm -hmm. um, Ruth, who is a woman, James, who is um, poor, mm -hmm. and Paul, who was for all intents and purposes, an abused child. Sure. They did not use those experiences to broaden their humanity. They used those experiences to, to forfeit it. Mm. Mm. You talk about the long chapter with Paul. I mean, the, I don't know if it's in the same chapters, but uh, you know, two of the scenes, one's where he goes out to the bar just kind of by himself, just to let out some steam, you know, like many people do. But his steam is, you know, all of the the evil and things that he's done at the at the plantation, and things that are going on there. But he he gets the crap beat out of him. Basically, he kind of get he gets set up, 
And but he has this he has this revelation or whatever, at least he thinks. I think it's probably just the whiskey speaking to him, but he has this revelation and he's talking to Adam, who is, you know, again, his biological son, and just kind of like, you know, how great is the Lord, you know, and how great are we to to have his favor? And that's like when you're talking about how, you know, how could another person think that another person could be property? He continues to justify and justify and justify through through the holy book, right? And at the same time, nearly looks at Adam as his son. Almost, right? Almost. Almost, because as evil as any human being can be, and human beings, gosh, can be evil. Oh, yeah. There's still always a little tiny glimmer flash of something, even if they're trying to suppress it, trying to get rid of it, mm-hmm. or they do so so many monstrous things that it overwhelms it. Mm-hmm. There's still that little thing in them because they are a human they are still a human being despite being a monster at the same time right right and you know you for sure do not let him off the hook you know um <laughs> you know there's there's also that scene where you know he he basically craps his pants you know i mean all the way down his pants right and just you know he he feels like almost like in a flash he feels like he's the one on his knees you know he the the degrading thing i mean couldn't you know so degrading to to maggie you know, who comes out to has to to clean it and he keeps giving her instructions and the instructions are bad. So it's almost like a comedy of errors, right? If it wasn't such a horrific situation. And and what's what's what I love about that scene, and a few people got this, is that Maggie and Essie are purposely playing him. Yeah. They're purposely. Oh, you only told me this, right? You only told me this bit this piece. I just did what you told me. Yes. So they're they're like really um twisting, you know, using his own words against him. <laughs> um, in a in a kind of way, and they kind of look at each other, um, you know, knowingly that they are doing this to him, and and you know, making him, well, he's he's making a fool of himself, and they're enjoying it. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. You know, it reminds you of like you know the ideas of like the, I guess I don't think trickster is the term, but you know, like in like like minstrel shows and in vaudeville and stuff like that, right? Where kind of like who's playing who, right? Right. right. And, you know, so much, you know, be below, you know, you know, we, we get to know Maggie pretty early on in the book and there's so much going on with her. I mean, she does, you know, little poisonings every once in a while. Right. And those kind of things. <laughs> she's um, everyone's favorite character, by the way. Oh man. She's great. <laughs> she's great. The, the, the beauty of this book, and there's so much beauty of this book. There are so many horrific, 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 horrific things just from a craft point of view. The writing is just, just incredible, but you, you know, I think he unfortunately knew what he was talking about. It's, it's been attributed to Stalin. Whoever said this idea of, you know, uh, a single death, uh, a million deaths is a statistic. A single death is a tragedy. Mm. You, you put the single person into, into focus so, so well. And to get to know these characters, um, you know, they're not in any way, um, st- what's the term? You know, they're not flat characters. They're dynamic characters. And the way that you're able to do that, not just for one character, but six or seven or ten, is just an absolute crap, uh, just, you know, work of art and and almost like a miracle. So, you know, I'm just uh, in awe of your writing and your your storytelling. And it's just been an absolute honor to talk to you about, you know, the the rationale and the background. And, and just thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You you you've asked me questions that no one has ever asked. And that's always a joy to, to you know, think about the work in a different way. So thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. I want to ask you really quick and you can, you can play the fifth if you like any, what are you working on now? Is there anything that's um, 
you know, down the road or is it like, Hey, this one's done and we're going to take a little break. As of yesterday, I am 201 pages into my second novel. Yes. Um, and so I'm hoping this might be a big one um, because I'm 200 pages in and I'm still just touching okay. the surface. Okay. Um, and there's some research I have to do before I can really get into the meat of it. Mm. Um, but I'm hoping to be done with the first draft at least by the end of next year. Um, so hopefully soon you'll be seeing another novel from me. All right. Can't wait to read it. Can't wait to uh, to continue to read and hear about all the great works you you continue to do. Thank you for for Son of Baldwin. Thank you for um, all the things you do to prop up other authors and just um, put so much good uh, written word out into the world. Thank you so much, Peter. Been a pleasure. What a pleasure it has been to speak today with Robert Jones Jr. Wow. Continue good luck to him with his writing, and I'm so looking forward to continue to follow his career and his important work. Thank you for listening to episode 155 with Robert Jones Jr. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Please subscribe to both my YouTube channel and my podcast while you're checking out this episode. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. And my last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. A little tease here, this month's bonus episode is about Rage Against the Machine. You heard me correctly. Also, new swag, new merch is available, including cool Chills at Will podcast t-shirts. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 156 with Namrata Podar. Namrata writes fiction and nonfiction, serves as interviews editor for Quelly, and teaches literature and writing at UCLA. Her work has appeared in several publications, including Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, Long Reads, The Kenyan Review, and The Best Asian Short Stories. Her debut novel, Borderless, was a finalist for Feminist Press's Louise Merriweather Prize. This episode will air on December 13th. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Robert Jones Jr., whose works, like The Prophets, give you chills at will. Mm-hmm.